0: for your second coming. And so God, I pray in the moments that we have today, this coming week, uh, whether it's waiting for a meal on a hungry stomach and we're feeling hangry, it's waiting for uh, opening presents, God, that we would be able to wait in such a way where we can hold loosely to the things of this world because we're waiting with expectancy and anticipation we're waiting with endurance for the ultimate arrival of jesus for the final fulfillment of your great promises so god form in us what the gospel forms love and joy and peace and patience and kindness god uh, may our lives be marked by these things because we're believing the gospel We're waiting upon you, and we're trusting you to form these things in us, to transform our sinful hearts, and to save us ultimately. In your great name I pray. Amen. Begin to see and admire. Welcome to Center Church. My name's Kevin, if I haven't met you before. Continuing our series in the Gospel of John. So we're gonna be in John chapter 6 this morning. So if you guys have physical Bibles, you want to turn there, you've got digital Bibles you want to swipe there. You also can follow along on the screen behind me if you want. So, the last number of weeks we've been uh, in a part of the book where Jesus was demonstrating his power. So we saw a couple of signs that he had done. He had fed thousands of people with five breadsticks and two sardines, essentially. And, And so many people were amazed by that. And then he also walked on water across the Sea of Galilee. And so he's demonstrated that he or he's demonstrated his divinity, that he is something far beyond you and I and those who he is interacting with. And now uh, what we're doing is he's following up his demonstrations of power with declarations of who he is and what he has come to do. So it's not just showing it, but now he's teaching it, and he's trying to fill out what people have seen him do. So we're going to be in John 6. I'm going to begin reading in verse 35. Jesus said to them, so this is taking place in the Jewish synagogue in Capernaum. So Jesus said to them in the synagogue, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. So the Jews grumbled about him, because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. So we've got this phrase that Jesus is describing himself with, I am the bread of life, bookending this this section of verses. So he says it in verse 35, and then he says it again in verse 48. And this is one of those statements that can be pretty confusing. Like, what does this really mean? It's a really spiritual statement. I am the bread of life. And, And some people can look at this or maybe read the Bible and be like, man, that's a weird, that's a weird statement. And, and Christians are weird. Like, how do, how do they get that? What, what's actually being communicated in this? And I think that these, provide, these verses provide us some understanding about Jesus and how he is the bread of life. So what we're going to do this morning, uh, there's so much in these verses, so you just kind of have to pick and choose uh, where you're going to focus your time. But we're just going to make three observations from these verses. And so the first observation regarding Jesus saying, I am the bread of life, is that Jesus is not talking about literal bread. Jesus is not talking about literal bread. Jesus is a person. He talks, he eats, he feels things, he expresses things. Food does not do any of those things. Though some of us, when there's a dessert in our refrigerator, may feel like it beckons us, right? Like it's calling out to us. Food does not talk to us. In the way that jesus does so look at verse 35 it says jesus says whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst so jesus is saying that hunger and thirst are quenched but not in the way that we typically think not with food and drink jesus is saying that our spiritual hunger and thirst are satisfied when we come to jesus or we could also say when we believe in jesus now this isn't just saying just coming to him like coming to a church service right because these jewish people are in the synagogue they're coming to him in a sense but they're not satisfied they're still looking for something more and so it's not just coming near in that sense it is coming to him in the sense of believing in him giving ourselves over to him, letting him sit on the throne of our lives, allowing him to be the king of everything in us and around us. And this, this takes on added significance in our religious context, because I, I mentioned last week that to read John 6 literally will cause us to be really confused. And last week I referenced a popular teaching really on the surface level, level, and I didn't say much about it, but this morning I want to explain it a little bit more. So the, the teaching, and I guess you could say popular teaching in some context, the popular teaching I referenced last week is something called transubstantiation. So everyone put on your theologian's hat this morning, right? Transubstantiation. It's a great theological word. So basically what transubstantiation is is a belief that when the Lord's Supper, when the Eucharist, when the communion is observed, when it's consumed, that the bread and the cup, whether it be wine or juice, that it actually turns into Jesus' body or it turns into Jesus' blood, that that actually literally is happening. So the motivation in this is that people then are forgiven, or they are drawn near to Jesus by consuming him. And, and in a sense, he, people are able to become holy when they eat of Jesus' body and drink of his blood. Now, this is primarily a Catholic teaching. So what I'm doing here this morning, I'm, I'm not just trying to to cap on the Catholics or to mock them. Uh, What I want to do is to help us understand what Jesus is teaching here. And we have to address this this idea of transubstantiation. One, because it is prominent, it's pervasive within the Catholic Church. But we live in a context here in Minnesota where there are tons of people who have experience with the Catholic Church. And so it's good for us to understand uh, why do they believe these things about the Eucharist or the Lord's Supper. Where do these things come from? And they would come here. This is the primary place they would come, the whole chapter of John 6. They would come here to say, this is where we get our teaching that Jesus' body uh, and blood, that we actually consume those things when we observe the Lord's Supper. So how some of this can, can play out practically, what Jesus is doing here in chapter 6, is he is teaching explicitly, really explicitly, that he requires people to believe in him. That's what he's calling people to, to trust in him. We read last week in, in John uh, 6, verse 29, that the works that God requires, so the works that he requires of Christians, is that they would believe in Jesus. So whatever, whatever ideas we have about the works of the Christian life, the things that we're supposed to do day in and day out, primarily what Jesus calls us to as Christians is that we would believe in Jesus. We would believe. And then, so it was very explicit last week. Today, it's mentioned another four or five times in the verses we're looking at. This idea of belief is prominent, it's pervasive. There's this continual call that Jesus is saying, believe in Him. So it's all over in this chapter that the Catholic Church would go to and say, ah, we have to do this work. So in in a chapter where Jesus is being really explicit to say, believe in me. Come to me. And when he says come, he's saying, believe. People will take that and say, this is a work that we need to do so that we can be holy, so that we can be forgiven, so that we can drawn near to Jesus. So we have to see that this is going on because this is a big part of our context here in Minnesota. Now, I mentioned last week to read John 6 literally and to take that to its logical end will cause us then to read this in such a way to say that the disciples should be doing something differently. Why are not the disciples Eating Jesus right there. Like I said, Jesus never says, He sticks out his arm and says it's snack time. Come and come and nibble on me, right? Like he never says that. He never encourages people throughout scripture to say, come and eat of my body, nor does he condemn people when when people don't do that. So that that is not being taught. The idea of transubstantiation is not being taught in any way. Cannibalism is never taught or encouraged in the bible so we have to conclude that what jesus is doing here what he is teaching here has nothing to do with people eating him or drinking him in a literal sense he's using a metaphor jesus is using a metaphor that ties directly to an event that happened just prior to this which is the feeding of thousands Okay? And it's also tying back to uh, historical Israel and how God provided manna to his people as they're wandering in the desert. So he's taking these events that are significant events in the life of Israel and he's using them to teach. In the same way that you eat food, and even in a greater way, feast on me. And when he's saying feast on me, he's saying believe in me. So as you eat food, be reminded, you need Jesus more. You need to trust Jesus in a greater way than you need to consume that food. He is the one who will satisfy us. Now, Jesus comments, they're unsatisfying to the Jews that he is talking to in the synagogue. They don't like it at all. And Verse 41 says that they grumbled about him. They don't like this idea of just being called to belief. They would rather have a list of rules or a list of to-dos that they can do to substantiate, look, this is how I know I'm okay in God's eyes. These are the things that I have done. And to go down that route then means that our salvation is tied to what we do. It's it's tied to our actions. and, And then salvation becomes... Saved by works, not by grace. So they're grumbling about what Jesus is saying. And this brings us to our second point, that grumbling evidences disbelief. Grumbling evidences disbelief. These Jews are grumbling because they don't like what Jesus said about himself. And what he said was, I am the bread that came down. From heaven, He is the bread that came down from heaven. And they understand that when he says this, he's saying that he is the Son of God. And in their minds, that cannot be. That cannot be. That is blasphemy to them. And, and when we read here about their grumbling that's going on the text almost reads like the jewish people who are in this conversation or uh, religious leaders who are part of it are having this conversation amongst themselves and and they're trying to figure this out on their own they're saying uh, this is jesus okay we know this dude right like he he's the son of joseph He's the son of Mary. We, we know his mom and his dad. We know where he's from. We can connect these dots about him. We know him. He, he is not from heaven. He is not the son of God. And, and yet, all the while, they're ignoring all the things that Jesus said has said about himself. They're also ignoring all the demonstrations of power that he has shown to them. So they're they're forgetting that he's this unschooled man who's teaching them. He's an unschooled man who's not been educated in the way that these religious leaders have, and yet he's teaching them. They're forgetting the fact that he's demonstrated unmatched power. They're forgetting how he spoke explicitly about his father. We just go back one chapter in John 5. Like, Jesus is talking very explicitly about his father, and his name, his father's name, was not Joseph. Jesus has come in his father's name. Jesus has come to do the will of his father. He does only what he sees his father doing. His father raises the dead to life. That is what Jesus has come to do. His father is from above. He, he's far beyond. His father is far beyond the picture of Joseph. And Jesus wants to make that really clear. And, and though these Jewish people can't explain Jesus, though they can't contain him, they still want to pull back from Jesus and kind of gather in their holy huddle and try to solve this riddle of Jesus. And they can't do it. They just can't wrap their arms around them. they can't wrap their mind around the things that he is doing and the things that he is teaching them. So what they do then is they begin to nitpick semantics. We don't like that you called yourself the bread that came down from heaven like your god. You're not God. It can't be. And so they give him a hard time about this, and they grumble. They grumble, just like their fathers did with the manna. When God rescued his people out of Egypt, before he gave them the manna, the fathers of these Jewish people grumbled, said, give us something to eat. They complained to Moses and to God, why'd you bring us out into the desert to kill us, to let us die out here? So they grumbled when they didn't have the manna. When God gave them the manna, what did they do? They grumbled. We want more variety. Why can't we go back into slavery in Egypt so we can enjoy all the good food that we had then? These Jewish people are just like their fathers. They're grumbling. They're grumblers. And and it's easy, easy for me, maybe easy for you to, to look at them and a cap on them, to just raz them. Like, don't you guys get it? Can't you just figure this out? But honestly, this, this one stings me pretty good because I think if I'm honest with myself, I think I'm, I'm a serial grumbler. I think I am. When I'm inconvenienced, when I'm frustrated, when I'm feeling entitled, I will find anything and everything to grumble about. If only, if only I could control my circumstances. But I can't. And here's the rub. We grumble for the same reasons that these people are grumbling. We grumble because we forget who God is. We grumble because we disbelieve that God is in control. We look at our situation, we're like, pfft. Why do I have to go through this? Why do I have to experience this? Why me? And, and in this, we oftentimes forget the reality that God's over this. He's working. He has something for us. He's not up there chuckling at us, laughing as we suffer. Not at all. God is closer than a brother. He draws near He walks into the storm with us. When he allows us to walk through hard times, deep valleys and dark nights, he goes with us. But he doesn't do it. He doesn't allow us to go through those things just because he wants to see us hurt. He does it because he wants what's best for us. He wants us to see and to feel our need for him what we ultimately yearn for, what we're ultimately looking for, is found in Him. And these Jews, they have Jesus standing right in front of them, right? He's offering Himself. He's going to say that, I am going to die. Like He's going to say that to them. He's offering them salvation. He's offering them life. He's extending grace. And they grumble. They spit on what he has to offer. They doubt. They disbelieve. They reject. So for us, this, this is where we read ourselves into this story. When we hear these Jewish people in the synagogue, we should say, that's me. I am them. They are me. And, and for us, as we walk through our days, and our weeks as we find ourselves doing what they're doing grumbling about anything or everything we need to stop and ask jesus what am i hoping in what am i believing in other than you what bread am i feasting on that's not giving me what i'm really looking for And Jesus, what do you have for me in this? What do you want me to learn? How do you want me to grow in my faith? Jesus is really clear in verse 43. He says, do not grumble. And this is something that Paul, the Apostle Paul, picks up on as well. In Philippians 2, the Apostle Paul writes, do all things without grumbling. Do all things. All things. Can you imagine that? Like, and when it says all things, it, there's not like this list of exclusions and fine print down below. Like, when he says all things, he's saying all things. That's what the Greek means there. And the reality is we can't, Right? You and I, we can't walk through life without grumbling unless our eyes are fixated on Jesus, seeing that he's over all of it, that he has good for us in the midst of it, that he is not just promising but working good for us through whatever situation or circumstances would cause us to want to grumble. And, and for us, like, when we're in the midst of those situations, it's oftentimes hard for us to, to believe that, to think that, to understand that, to ascend to that idea. But we see this happening, that God's going to work good in the ultimate way on the cross, right? People would look at the cross and be like, Jesus, what are you doing? Why are you giving yourself up in that way, being exposed in this weak way, being killed, and yet, In that moment, Jesus is accomplishing the greatest good in the history of humanity. And so even for us, in our smaller circumstances, when we are prone to grumble, remember the cross. Remember how Jesus has accomplished the greatest good in the darkest of nights. This reality that God is in control It's pervasive in these verses here and it details one of the great mysteries that we find in the Bible. This fact that God is in control and yet we look at this world around us. We look at our specific circumstances and we're like, are you? Are you in control, God? Because this thing is breaking down because things aren't working out the way that I might want them to because have you looked at our political system like things are fractured all over the place and the great mystery that we get in the bible is this god is responsible for the salvation of humanity and humanity is culpable for their rejection of god so god is responsible for saving humanity And humanity is responsible for our rejection of God. So first, let's look at the beginning of that statement. God is responsible for the salvation of humanity. Verse 44 reads, No one can come to me, this is Jesus, no one can come to Jesus unless the Father who sent me draws him. So we go to Jesus because his Father draws us. To him in verse 37 all that the father gives me will come to me we could also say all that the father gives me will believe in me so whatever series of events we might go through in our lives whatever decisions we might make however it might feel like we have stumbled upon god or we have found him on our own What the Bible teaches is that he first comes to us. He draws us. He woos us by revealing himself to us. And and part of the reality is it has to be this way. Otherwise, we will find some way to boast in our salvation. And, And Ephesians 2 is really clear. We have nothing to boast about. And one reason why this is such a glorious truth, the fact that God comes to us, is found in verses 37 and 39, where Jesus says, I will never cast out and I will lose nothing. The fact that God is the one who comes to us, that he is the one who saves us, he keeps us. It's not dependent on our ability to be so disciplined. He is the one who draws us near, and he is the one who will keep us. Not our good works, not our rigid discipline. He is the one who keeps us. So God is responsible for the salvation of humanity, but humanity is also responsible for their rejection of God. So Despite God being solely responsible for drawing humanity to himself, humanity possesses a meaningful choice. Belief. Belief in him. Verse 47 says, Whoever believes has eternal life. And verse 37 says, Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Whoever believes in Jesus, he will not cast out. So we have this meaningful choice of belief in him, of exercising belief. D.A. Carson, a theologian, talks about these two realities in this way. He says, God is absolutely sovereign, but his sovereignty never functions in Scripture to reduce human responsibility. So he's sovereign, There's human responsibility. And then secondly, human beings are responsible creatures. That is, they choose, they believe, they disobey, they respond, and there is moral significance in their choices. But human responsibility never functions in Scripture to diminish God's sovereignty or to make God absolutely contingent. So these two truths create a paradox. Paradox is a seeming contradiction. They seem like they contradict themselves. But they're both clearly taught in the Bible. And and not just here in John 6, but throughout. We could go to hundreds of places and find this. Our tendency as limited beings is to hate on God. to, To be like, well... If God is responsible for saving me, then, then I'm just a robot. Like, my choices don't mean anything. They're not really my choices. He's just determining things for me. God is like this cosmic coercer. In this mystery of these two truths being held together, I think we see the kindness of God. We have meaningful Choices. But we also have a God who is in control. He's not impotent. And it's good that we're not in control. It's good that He is in control because we feel this every day. There are things that we cannot fix on our own, that we cannot change, things that we cannot overcome. And part of the reality that God is trustworthy, it has this this aspect of it, that he can do something about it. That's what makes him trustworthy, that he can do something about our situation. And so because God is good, we should want him to insert himself into our reality. And this is what he does when he comes down from heaven. He inserts himself into our reality, our broken reality reality so that he might bring restoration he might tight he might take that which is fractured and put it back together he comes to do the will of his father because we will not and we cannot do it on our own and he says look at me believe and in this scenario we get the best of both worlds we get meaningful choices And we get a God who's in control, who cares for us, who is good, who can do something about our situation. And so because this is who he is, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Feast on me. Believe in me. Let me quench your hunger and thirst because I alone can do it. No one, nothing else can can give you what you're looking for nothing else can satisfy you in the way that i can so our gospel application this morning there's a clear call in these verses to believe in jesus to come to him And, and we need to hear that over and over and over because we're continually bombarded with other things to trust in So, we need to hear this call. Believe in Jesus, only in Jesus. But what's most important that we see here in these verses is what's behind this call to believe. And it's a call that was similar to the Jews when they saw Jesus multiplying the bread before their eyes. They got fixated on the bread. They wanted to eat the bread. They wanted their stomachs to be filled because they were hungry and they were focused just on that. But Jesus wanted them to look beyond the bread to the bread of life, to him. And similarly for us, when we hear Jesus' call to believe in him, to come to him, what we need to see in these verses is that he has first come to us the reason why we can come to him is because he has first come to us first john i think it's chapter four talks about we love because jesus first loved us similarly we come to jesus because he first came to us he enables us he motivates us to do that he provides us everything that we need so that we can come to him he humbles himself by coming down from heaven and then he runs after those who are running away from him because he knows that as we run away from him we're running to destruction we're running to that which will destroy us and he says i want what's best for you i want better for you than your destruction so he pursues after us hear the call to believe but let the motivation for believing be not to be a better person but let the motivation be jesus has come to us and then secondly as we find ourselves grumbling complaining today this week ask yourself why because behind that grumbling there is something or someone that has rejected you, that has disappointed you, that has cast you out, that has disregarded you in some way that Jesus will not. Jesus, in fact, promises that he will not cast us out, that he will not reject us. And, and he does this in an ultimate, war, ultimate way, spiritually, he saves us from sin and hell and death. He saves us from our sin. He doesn't reject us in the greatest way. So let that reality, the greatest reality in your life, let that inform the smaller annoyances. Those things, those circumstances, those situations that will cause you to grumble. And let Jesus dictate your feelings remember he's over that he has something for you in that so seek him come to him pursue him believe him so that he can do his work in you and as you trust jesus let him kill the sin of grumbling in your hearts let's pray thank you jesus that you come to us, that you don't leave us alone. You don't leave us on an island. You don't leave us forsaken, lost in misery. You come to us. You chase us. And you delight when we are found in you. Remind us of the beauty of this truth god pour out grace on us so that we can see afresh receive for the first time your kindness in this way and and god may we believe you to the extent that in even those small ways that we will grumble that we feel entitled that that you can work in us in such a way that we can see you care about the small things you want to grow us in and through those things as well so that we would learn to trust you in any and every situation no matter how big or how small you would be sufficient you would be the one who satisfies us so god help us to be to be reminded of this even as we sing now we respond to this to proclaim with our words of who you are and what you have done in your great name i pray amen in that He desires to fill us with joy so that we might trust him. We might see him for who he really is. A good, kind God that loves us beyond anything or anyone. Let's pray. God, thank you for this opportunity to be reminded, maybe to even pry into our hearts a little bit and and to consider, am I joyful And if not, why am I not joyful? If you give joy, if you want to make our joy complete, what is it that we are looking to? What is it that we're hoping in that is failing us, that is disappointing us? And so God, I pray that you'd give us eyes to see and hearts that are soft that would be teachable. So God, even in these moments, change us. Transform us. Grow us. So that we would trust you increasingly. So that Jesus would increase in us and we would decrease. So God, have your way as only you can. You are a good God. Help us to see that. In your great name, I pray. Amen. You guys want to stand with us if anyone wants to observe communion, the Lord's Supper during this set of songs, I encourage you guys to do that.